You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea And today we are so excited to talk about all things period-related menstruation, period products. Uh, You all submitted a bunch of questions. We're going to debunk a bunch of myths. So we have lots of content to cover, so much so that we're actually going to have a part two to this. But before we get into things, let's recap last week's episode, which was very timely as the weather starts to heat up. We were joined by Dr. Michelle Wong, who's a science educator and cosmetic chemist to talk about all things related to sunscreen. So um, we started things off with a discussion about skin cancer and its prevalence and the importance of prevention and early detection. We eased into things with a primer on the history of sunscreen and its evolution over time. We talked about the basics of sunscreen, its composition, and the different types of sunscreens. We also discussed the different types of UV light and the risks associated with UV radiation and DNA damage as it relates to aging and cancer. We discuss various types of skin cancer and risk factors, including sun exposure, of course. We answered a bunch of questions for our Herd from the Herd segment, including how to properly apply sunscreen, the impact on the environment, and more. We spent a lot of time, as usual, debunking chemophobia, this time as it relates to chemicals in sunscreen. So we had a lot of fun with this episode. If you missed it, definitely go back and check it out. So we want to um, start things off with a disclosure. So this episode is sponsored by Procter & Gamble, P&G. We are super excited um, that they took an interest in uh, the information that we put out in our science communication efforts. And we want you to rest assured that we remain in control of the content for this episode and for the posts that we've put out related to this topic. Um, We did um, all of the research and content. We dug into the literature. So we are staying true to our name, Unbiased Science. So let's kick things off, Andrea. Let's get a little personal. When did you get your period? Oh, so I think it was early in seventh grade, and I was a little bit young for my grade, so I must have been around 11. Um, And I remember that it was me and one of my other classmates who I happen to be really good friends with, we both happened to develop very um, early compared to the other girls. We had, you know, breasts in middle school that had to actually wear a bra and, um, you know, coincidentally both happened to get our periods around the same time. And I remember it was such a comfort to have her because we could kind of talk about it with each other, um, even though some of our other classmates hadn't gotten their periods yet. So that's interesting. So I wanted my period so badly. (laughs) Every time I went to the bathroom, I was like, please, please, please let there be some blood. Um, I was not an 
an early bloomer. I actually, I was tormented. Um, junior high school, man, people are brutal. They would put signs on my back saying, got milk. Um, so I did not develop breasts. I would have been very jealous of you, Andrea, if we, if we were friends back in the day. Um, I didn't get my period until I was 14 years old. So a little different than you. Um, and it's, I'm so happy that we're doing this episode because I remember there being so much misinformation on this topic. I had no clue how to use tampons. Um, probably for the first few years of using them, they were only like half inserted because I thought that they could get, Oh oh, yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to get into this, but they were like hanging out of me. So I was having leaks because they weren't properly inserted because someone had told me that tampons could get lost in your body. We're going to debunk that myth because there's no truth to that. I was also really scared of TSS shock, toxic shock syndrome. And we got so many questions about that. And so we are going to, um, to address that as well. But do you remember any, were there any myths or concerns that you had? The biggest thing for me was I was a competitive judo player as a kid. And so when I got my, I didn't want my period because um, I actually have a very heavy period and I have really bad cramps, particularly in the first couple of days. And, you know, I, I would sometimes be, you know, stricken with nausea and sometimes would have to miss school. Um, and so you know, as a judo player, I don't know if anybody knows, but the uniform we wear is also white um, pants and top. And um, so I really couldn't wear pads. And so I think my very first period I wore pads because I remember I got my period in school. And so that's what the nurse had on hand. Um, But my mom actually, you know, kind of taught me using the instruction insert in a box of tampons, how to insert tampons and, you know, how to use them. And so I was really fortunate that I could have that conversation with her um, really because I didn't have a really, I didn't have another option. I, if I wanted to be an athlete, um, I couldn't really wear pads. And I know that pads are probably designed a little better now, but you know, wearing a white gi where you're doing a full contact sport, like I was like, no, we need to solve this. We need to use tampons. And, and so we did talk about all those things, the, the TSS, you know, the fact that the risk is very low and the fact that as long as you're being vigilant about, you know, how you use your tampons and using them responsibly. And I remember I went to judo camp, I think it was that summer, and the only tampons the nurse had on staff were the applicator-free tampons. And I had never, like, physically, you know, shoved it, you know, other than with the applicator, right? So I'm like, oh, I got to use my finger to, you know, insert the tampon. And that was a whole other thing because I was young and I had, that was kind of clueless, but, you know, we figured it out and it, you know, it worked out in the end. As you're talking about judo camp, I'm just sitting here realizing we are so different, Andrea. <laughs> possibly be more different. No, but the applicator free, that's really popular, um, uh, outside of the U S right. So many other countries, that's just like standard practice. So are you currently team tampon or what do you use when you have your period? I am. I'm team tampon. I've been team tampon since I was 11 and I've never looked back <laughs> and you know, it works for me. I don't have any issues and you know, obviously sometimes when things are really heavy, you know, use the backup pad if you need, um, you know, especially if I'm going to, you know, wear a tampon overnight, but yeah, I've never had any issues, never looked back, you know, why fix it if it ain't broke right, is kind right. of my mentality. 
<laughs> so I'm the I'm team tampon. Um, once I figured out that they can't get lost up there. And again, we're going to talk all about that. Um, I, they, it's just what works for me. I put it in there. I never think of it, you know, because it's so comfortable. Um, I use Tampax Pearl. I love them. Um, and just like you, I sometimes use a backup pad. I use the, the always ones with the wings because I want them to stay in place if I'm sleeping in them overnight. Um, so yeah, that's my go-to and I've tried other products and I know we're going to get people who are listening to this saying, why aren't you talking about other products? We will probably not on this episode, but our next episode. But honestly, I tried uh, period underwear in particular for me. I thought it was, I felt uncomfortable. I also have a heavy flow and I use one of the first generation uh, ones. So maybe they've improved over time, but I just kind of felt I don't know. Yeah. I felt it <laughs> with tampons. Yeah. I, don't I know it. what you mean. I know what you mean. All right. So I think it makes sense to kick things off with a primer on menstruation. And yeah. I, you know, we want to give the disclaimer that of course, everyone's period experience is unique. Um, it's all about knowing your normal, but, um, Andrea, let's talk about the different phases of the menstrual cycle. What's going sure. on in our bodies? Yeah, and I think, you know, just you, I mean, just, just from chatting, I think people can understand that, you know, everybody has a different, you know, menstrual cycle when they become monarchal, which is the onset of, of menses, of menstruation. You know, I was a little bit younger than Jess. The average age range when people have onset of, of menses is between the ages of 12 and 14, but some people can be earlier and some people can be later. And this is, you know, menstruation is the, or your period is the monthly shedding of the lining of the uterus. And we'll get into what's in that lining. Um, maybe on next episode, we did do an infographic where we talked a little about what is in period blood and it's more than just blood. There are cells and other sorts of things in there. Um, but this process, this is actually a cycle. It's not just that window where you have physical bleeding and that's your period. It's actually a an on average 28-day cycle that has four main phases. And these phases are actually triggered by the rise and fall of different hormones in our body that are really preparing people's bodies for pregnancy if, in fact, an egg is fertilized. And so the initial phase or the first phase is the menses phase. So that's when the actual uterine lining is shed through the vagina if, if an egg has not been fertilized and, and subsequently a pregnancy does not occur. That's our period, and that's typically considered, you know, about five days. Some people, you know, have their period for a little bit longer, maybe seven days. Um, some people have it for a little bit shorter. So, again, it's about knowing what's normal for you. And if there are irregularities that are outside of what would be considered normal, of course, always consult your clinical team, your gynecologist. The next phase would be the follicular phase, and that's typically from days 6 through 14, and that. That's really where um, estrogen, a particular hormone that's very important in the menstrual cycle, rises. And the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus, and this is actually part of our immune system, which is really interesting, um, that starts to grow and that starts to thicken. So we're starting to prepare our body for the chance or the possibility of pregnancy. Um, and during this period, the follicles on the ovaries grow, and that's ultimately you know, how we're going to form and release an egg. And so during the, the end phase of the follicular phase, 10, days 10 to 14 usually, um, one of the follicles on one of the ovaries, remember we have two, or most people have two ovaries. Obviously there are medical conditions where you have only one or some people have none, of course, but one of those follicles is going to form a mature egg and that egg is called an ovum. 
Then you have your ovulation phase. So that's where obviously it's kind of self-explanatory. You're going to ovulate. You're going to release that egg. And so that's usually around day 14. So the ovary, whichever ovary has matured, that follicle is going to release the egg. That's ovulation. And that's really due to an increase in luteinizing hormone, which is going to trigger that release. And then you have the final phase, which is the luteal phase. And that's usually days 15 through 28. And this is kind of the egg's adventure through the reproductive tract. So the egg is going to be released from the ovary. It goes through the fallopian tubes, and then it has to get into the uterus. And you have progesterone that's increasing in levels. That's another hormone that's involved in the menstrual cycle. And that's, again, preparing that endometrium for potential pregnancy. So, of course, the egg has to be fertilized by a sperm. So if by the time it gets to the uterus, it doesn't encounter a sperm, um, then ultimately it will be shed and then you're going to go back into your menses phase and have your period. But if the egg is fertilized by a sperm, that fertilized egg is now going to attach itself to the uterine wall and it's going to start to rapidly divide into a zygote, which is a precursor of an embryo. And then ultimately you have fetal development, which we're not going to talk about today, but that's going to be the start of a pregnancy. And of course, if pregnancy doesn't occur, those estrogen and progesterone levels will drop, and then we're going to shed the the lining of the uterus and all of the blood and cells and things back into the menses phase. How amazing is the body? <laughs> and, and pretty and, incredible. It really is. So you know, we want to be clear again that in terms of when you get your period or the length of your cycle and you know how heavy your flow is, there's no normal, right? But let's just talk about some averages. So most cycles are between 23 to 36 days. They could be longer or shorter. My cycle is 28 days. Andrea, do you, do you know how long yours is? <laughs> Mine is 28 days, and that's because I am on oral contraceptives, which regulate that for me. Well, there you go. Um, (laughs) Most periods are between two to eight days with four to six being on the, being the average. Um, For me, my periods typically four to five days at most. How about you? Mine's usually five to six days, but like the last day is usually really, really light. I just usually need like a liner or like a, Same. you know, whatever the, the light, light tampon, tampon is. Right. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. I know you're not on TikTok as much as I am, but there's been a lot of TikToks about periods. And I think that that's awesome because we need to be having these conversations. But I guess some people have talked about the last day as the brown day or I don't know. Yes. And, and then yes. you have like a bunch of men or, you know, people who've never had periods who are, who are <laughs> reacting to that, like, what does that mean? You know, I'm not understanding. <laughs> it is the brown it. day. It's it the, totally brown day. Is the brown day. And when I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, the brown day. Like, of course that makes total sense. All right. So not ovulating during a cycle can cause a very heavy period. Um, this happens most often during the teenage years, perimenopause, or if you're really stressed or after, um, pregnancy. And I had that after both pregnancies. I remember my, my, um, my first period was just super, super heavy both times. Um, Heavy bleeding can also occur due to fibroids or with certain IUDs. I also have fibroids. Do you, I think, do you have fibroids or am I making that up? Yeah. So it's, um, obviously they're benign and, and generally they're asymptomatic, but it is something that is found in my family. 
Hmm. Okay. Um, There can also be irregular bleeding, uh, you know, off schedule, not when you expect to have your period. And this can also occur when you don't ovulate. Sometimes this happens, but again, as Andrea said, if you ever have any concerns about bleeding when you don't expect to be bleeding, it's definitely a good idea to follow up with your doctor. So primary amenorrhea is the condition of never having a period by the latest age, um, 16 years at which menstruation usually starts. And then secondary amenorrhea is missing periods after having had at least one. And then Andrew, you have to help me with this other yeah, I will. I, w- I was just going to mention really quickly that secondary amenorrhea is actually very common in um, athletes. athletes. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> particularly like elite endurance athletes where like low body fat is often associated with performance now there's actually been a lot of work being done within the you know athletic community to kind of break down some of that stigma and that like you can still be a really fast runner and a really you know long distance runner without being you know, super low body fat. But again, low body fat and and a lot of these other things can feed back into those hormone levels, which can mess up your menstrual cycles. Absolutely. And I I never did anything professionally or competitively, but I did gymnastics and ballet as a teenager. I was also always, I had very, very, very low um, body fat. I was very um, petite, thin my whole life. Um, And so I I did sometimes uh, skip periods and I went to my doctor and confirmed that everything was okay. But again, it's one of those things that you just want to check in with your, with your doc about. Um, yep. Andrew. All right. So we're talking about oligomenorrhea, oh, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is infrequent or erratic periods. Um, and so that, that sometimes could be confused with secondary amenorrhea, um, whereas oligomenorrhea is, is usually more unpredictable where you might get a period every, you know, in three weeks and then another one in, you know, eight weeks and so on and so forth. So when you first get your period, uh, the cycles tend to be longer. That's common during the first few years of menstruation. And then over time, they regulate as you get older and eventually shorten. Now, something that we recommend is to track your cycle. I know every time I go to the doctor, they always ask, me, when was your last period? You know, what what was the length of your last period? They ask me questions and I often don't know off the top of my head. So I have an app on my phone. I actually use the always, um, always you period tracker app. Um, and it just helps me track the start date, the end date. It lets me put in, um, some of my symptoms. I can track how heavy my period was, things like that. Um, and the really cool thing about this particular app is the more that you interface with it and interact with it, they actually donate period products to, to check charities and, and, and to folks who don't, um, necessarily have access to them. Mm, I love that. I should probably start using an app because I actually notice that sometimes my anxiety worsens during my period or when my hormone levels are changing. And even my psychiatrist mentioned that it might be a good idea to keep some tabs on, on yeah. my cycle. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> For me, my anxiety and my depression, actually, I, I absolutely see changes throughout my cycle. So get on that, Andrea. So there are um, lots of things that can cause irregularities, obviously pregnancy, uh, breastfeeding, eating disorders that ties into, uh, Andrea, what you were just talking about with, um, right. Body fat and things like that. Um, fibroids, uh, 
PCOS, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease. There are lots of things. This is not an exhaustive list. And also, you know, as I mentioned, the endometrium is part of your immune system. So really anything that can tax your immune system can ultimately impact your cycle. Um, We heard a lot of that, you know, during the rollout of the COVID vaccinations on a global scale. And ultimately, you know, things that activates or, um, you know, interact with your immune system certainly could, you know, temporarily interact with your menstrual cycle. Um, But again, those things should not persist long term. And if they do, that would be when you want to talk to your healthcare provider. Right. So things like if your period stops for 90 days and you're not pregnant, um, if you if you bleed for more than seven days and if that's unusual for you, um, if you have severe pain, um, an unusual amount of heavy bleeding, you just kind of have to know your own body. Right. Because there's no like exact, like we said, number of days, length of cycle, um, flow it varies for every person. So just know what's normal for you. And if you have any questions, talk to your doctor. And, you know, I, as a, as a young teen, I remember being really shy about talking about my period, but this is what they do for a living, right? Gynecologists, and they don't even bat an eye and you can actually have, I didn't even realize this, a pelvic exam while you're on your period. They, this is just totally, totally normal for them. Well, and I was, and I was going to say, you know, obviously there's stigma and I think we'll talk a little bit about the history of that, um, you know, about periods, but like, we have to remember that about 50% of the global population has their period at some point in their life. And, you know, we have to start getting comfortable with talking about it more. And especially, you know, as we mentioned, you know, it's about listening to your body and knowing what's normal for you, but, but particularly for young girls or, or teens who are going through, you know, their first period or getting adjusted to what their cycle is, you know, they're, they may not know what's normal for them. And so being able to talk to people who have a little bit more experience and can share some insight um, in addition to their doctor um, can, is really helpful because, you know, I was thankful that I had that just to teach me how to put a tampon in. For sure. And actually, Andrea, I don't know if I shared this with you, but one of my neighbors, um, he he reached out to me and he and his husband, um, they have a daughter and neither of them had their periods. And so they were like, wow, that infographic that you shared is really helpful. And oh, when is this podcast episode coming out? So yeah, we just have to keep talking about these things. So Andrew, one of the questions that we got was, you know, it seems like uh, people are getting their, their periods at younger ages. Does this have anything to do with meat or milk consumption, the hormones in our foods? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, there have been some epidemiologic data that suggested that On a population level, there is a shift toward a slightly younger demographic in terms of onset of menarche. So that's, you know, starting of your first period. Um, But that's really like compared to like the mid 1800s. So a lot of things have changed since then, right? Our preventative health care, our prenatal treatment, you know, our pediatric medicine, um, and ultimately, you know, unfounded and unsubstantiated claims have kind of made their way into, you know, media and pop culture and things like that. And we actually talked quite a bit about this on our organic podcast episode. So if you really want the deep dive, um, go tune into that episode. Um, But ultimately, yes, there's a little bit of a population shift towards earlier onset of puberty. Um, There are a few theories, a few working theories that have some preliminary data to support 
you know, why that might be. You know, the first might be we have better nutrition. So we have, you know, we're getting better sources of macro and micronutrients, which means that we can grow at a faster rate, which means that we develop at a faster rate, which means we enter puberty at a faster rate. There actually is some data that suggests that um, in order to onset puberty and and obviously um, menses, you have to achieve or acquire a certain body mass. um, And that is ultimately linked to obesity. And there is some there is some evidence to suggest that obesity levels are actually correlated with onset of of menstruation. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about this in, in in just a second in more detail. And of course, there is potential genetic and, and ethnic um, roles and contributions in this. It seems that um, African Americans and those of Hispanic heritage generally um, have onset of puberty and menses um, a little bit sooner than 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 Caucasian uh, people of Caucasian descent. And it's it's like a half a year. I think it's like 12.2 versus like 12.6 years is the average. I was just going to say, so yeah, shifting demographics could also explain some of those, you know, that changing trend. Um, and as you said, you know, if if our um, if certain subpopulations were seeing that population growth in certain populations that can shift at a right our population uh, statistics, even if, as you just said, even if it's a, a, a small shift, it's still a shift that's going to be reflected. Um, but do, do you want to take a little bit of time talking about the hormones? Okay. Yeah. Let me just kind of provide the high level overview. So, so hormones, as we kind of talked about, you know, we talked about estrogen and, and luteinizing hormone and progesterone when we just talked about the, the menstrual cycle, but hormones are molecules in our body. They can either be uh, protein based or fat based. These are called lipids or steroid hormones. Um, these are produced by pretty much every organism out there and they're transported through our bloodstreams um, to target all sorts of things in our body and they help regulate our physiology and behavior. So hormones in and of themselves are just molecules that our body makes and needs for a variety of processes. There are tons of them. Um, you know, they're necessary. They they are required for certain processes. They're required for brain um, transmission. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, this idea that hormones are somehow bad, again, has been kind of, you know, manipulated by pop culture and and social media. But um, there are certain types of hormones that are allowed to be used in the livestock industry. And these are usually, um, so steroid hormones are the fat-based hormones, so things that are derivatives of cholesterol and and similar. And in the case of of the hormones we're talking about, those are estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. These are steroid hormones. They're not allowed to be used in dairy cattle, in veal, in poultry, or in pigs. they are allowed to be used in beef cattle and in sheep. Now, these are little implants in, in the ear that dissolve like over the life of the animal, and they just help augment the levels of hormone that the animals are already producing. And ultimately, where the implant is located, that's not even used in the products that we would ever consume. The ears are essentially discarded. So there are a variety of benchmarks for levels of hormones. And again, these animals are already producing these hormones to begin with. Um, And all of these hormones in particular have been studied 
in-depth um, and there's nothing that's being kind of translated to the food we're eating that's going to ultimately affect us when we consume it. There's no risk in, in consuming meats that have or have not received a little hormone implant in their ear. Now, there's another hormone that we hear a lot when it comes to milk, which is bovine growth hormone or BGH, sometimes also called BST, which is bovine somatotropin. That's the same, same thing. So this is a protein-based hormone, uh, a peptide, and it's produced by the cow's pituitary gland, and it helps cows lactate, so basically increases milk production. So this is already naturally produced by cows, so we can actually supplement this when we're raising dairy cows, um, and it helps increase milk production by like 10 to 15%. So in some dairy farms, this is used, um, but it actually does not affect the cow's health. Um, there's there's some mixed data, um, but ultimately the general consensus is that um, um, there's no detrimental effect to the cow's health. And of course, um, it allows them to produce more milk for smaller input, right? Fewer cows, less land use, et cetera. There's also no risk in drinking milk or eating dairy products that have been supplemented with BST or BGH. Ultimately, when we pasteurize milk products, we actually degrade any of that residual protein that might have been in the milk in the first place. So even if we're drinking that milk, we're not getting any of that functional hormone anyway. Um, there's actually no difference between milk um, from BST-supplemented cows and non-BST-supplemented cows. And hormones are never added to milk as a final product. Um, that's, that's not allowed. The only things that are added would be like vitamins A and D if they're called fortified milk. Just, um, you know, I'm all about that uh, regulation and safety testing and all that. So I just wanted to chime in and say just to echo what you just said, that these things have been tested and tested and tested and the FDA, the World Health Organization, the NIH, all of these organizations have um, independently tested these things, right? And they found that there is no risk in consuming meat or dairy products from cows that have been given these hormones. There's no discernible effect on humans. And as Andrea just said, they're they're destroyed during pasteurization, during cooking process uh, processes, um, and also they're not added to the milk directly, right? So just wanted to drive that point home. Sorry. Yeah. Now the reason the reason these got a lot of attention with regard to puberty and menstruation is because there was a paper in 1997 that noticed that noted that girls in particular were entering puberty at earlier ages than previously accepted again these standards are not always revised that frequently. And the group in their discussion part of the study said, oh, well, maybe it's because the hormones in food with no data to support that whatsoever. So of course that kind of triggered this, you know, fire where people are like, oh my gosh, these hormones in food. So of course studies have investigated that really. Um, so a, t a 2015 study in the Journal of Nutrition looked at nearly 6,000 um, girls who were premenarchal um, ages 9 to 14 starting in 1996 and followed them for five years. And by that point, 97% of them had, um, had their first period. They looked at meat and milk consumption. They looked at quantity and frequency of milk consumption. Um, they also adjusted for all these confounding variables that we always talk about. And they found that total meat or red meat or milk consumption, none of them were related to the age of onset of their period. There was another study in 2001 in pediatrics actually reported the same. And this was actually one of the first studies that noted that the girls who developed their uh, menstrual cycle, their period, 
sooner had higher body mass index. And that was kind of the original link um, or the original uh, correlation that was observed with regard to obesity rates and earlier onset of of puberty. Just my frustration that these one-off studies, I mean, we saw it with um, the MMR vaccine (laughs) and autism, right? You have these one-off studies, good old Andy Wakefield. And even if they've been attracted or debunked or whatever, and there's all of this evidence since they, you know, disproving what they claim there, we still feel the effects of those studies. And that's, that's what we're dealing with here. I'm sorry, go on. (laughs) And I, well, I think, you know, even the, the more frustrating part, you know, cause obviously like we've, we've published peer reviewed studies and, you know, you can kind of make hypotheses and guesses and, you know, future directions in your discussion. But everybody has to remember that discussions, aside from kind of reviewing the data you present, you know, a lot of the things that we can talk about in the discussion are are unsubstantiated, right? They need data or follow-up study. And so, you know, it's so frustrating that people kind of clung to this one little sentence in the discussion of this study um, where the author, you know, to be fair, the authors probably shouldn't have said it in the first place, but, um, you know, people kind of ran with it. But at this point, the data demonstrate that hormones, you know, whether it's BST, BGH, or steroid hormones that are added to certain meat products have no effect on us when we're consuming them. And beyond that, we digest them, right? As soon as they enter our stomach, the very acidic environment in our stomach is going to break down these fats and these proteins into their byproducts where they're ultimately going to just get recycled into things that we need to synthesize in our body, like hormones that we actually need for physiological function. So yeah, there's no evidence that hormones in food products are causing early puberty. Dr. Love putting that myth to bed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, let's, let's talk history. So this was really wild (laughs) when we were looking into (laughs) historical attitudes around menstruation. I mean, periods have been stigmatized for so many years. And that's again, why I think it's so great that we're having this conversation. But, um, so ancient Romans believed, uh, that people who menstruated were dark witches. Um, ancient French believed that intercourse during menstruation led to the birth of monsters. Um, some cultures required that people spent time in menstruation huts and actually physically isolated them from other people. In 1869, Dr. James McGregor Allen told the Anthropological Society of London that during menstruation, women were invalids, quote, unfit for any great mental or physical labor. They should see you doing judo or running marathons on your period. Um, You know, there have been so many myths, again, about uh, intercourse uh, during menstruation, this idea that menstruation is unclean or impure, uh, that menstrual blood pollutes the earth. 
earth or can lead to dangerous magic. So we have to normalize. Pyramids. I want to, yeah, <laughs> but I want to give, I want to give like the ancient Romans and ancient French a little bit of a pass. Cause like, they didn't understand science True. and physiology True. and hormones and stuff. But I feel like by, like, the late 1800s, like, we had a pretty good understanding that, like, menstrual cycles were related to pregnancy and, like, we had some, you know, emergence of rudimentary modern medicine. So I feel like... Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unpack about, you know, male-dominated profession in science and medicine, and and that obviously has kind of propagated stigma. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, like, about 50% of the global population is going to menstruate at some point in their lives, and so we got to normalize talking about it and, you know, products that we can use to make it more manageable and make it less uncomfortable, and yeah, you know? I have two kiddos. Um, my son is turning six, uh, my daughter is four, and I'm already talking about periods with them. You know, I'll use the word, I'll tell them when, you know, when I have my period. I just, I want it to be something that we can talk about openly so that when the time comes and, you know, my daughter gets her period, she feels comfortable. She feels like she can come to me with questions and, and knows how to handle it. Um, so maybe, maybe we talk a little bit about the history of period care products now. When we dug into the history of them, it's very clear we've come a very long way and we're very lucky uh, to, to have the products that we have today. So Tampons in particular, they were actually used in medical practice even long before they were introduced for menstruation, right? They were used to stop bleeding and deep wounds. Um, they were used on the battlefield. Uh, they were used to introduce medicines, including those with contraceptive properties into the vagina. So right off the bat, you know, they weren't always used for menstruation purposes. Um, then in the late 19th century, we saw the invention of the first menstrual product. So from the 1890s, to the early 1980s, people use something called sanitary belts. Andrew, did you look at some of the pictures of these? Yes. <laughs> I am very thankful I didn't have to wear one of those. Thank you, Tampax. <laughs> My goodness. So they were basically just reusable pads that were attached to a belt that you wear around the waist. Yes, they were as, as uncomfortable as they sound, um, but the reusable pad part of the sanitary belt, that was a pretty good idea, and that obviously kind of paved the way for some of what we're seeing in, in modern day period products. But maybe that's why like people wore like big skirts and like to, to hide all the bulk of the, the sanitary belt, because I feel like, I feel like that, you know, I, I it connotes an image of an adult diaper in my head, you know? For sure. The belts were bulky. Leakage was common. I don't think these were the, the sexiest of products. So I, I think <laughs> I think you're on to something. So the first disposable pads hit the market in 1888, uh, Lister's Towels by Johnson & Johnson. And in the early 20th century, World War I nurses used cellulose bandages in place of their reusable ones. Um, the belts stuck around, though, to hold those disposable pads in place. Um, then in the early uh, 1920s, there was the menstrual apron. Um, they said this was advertised as being good for travel, automobiling, and athletics. Um, really, it was it was meant to be worn under a dress or a skirt. 
Again, I'm picturing bulky. I'm thinking leakage. Not great. Um, Then the late 1920s, early 1930s, we had the fax tampon. Um, Rather than being removed by a string, this was covered in a layer of gauze, um, which the woman twisted and then used for removal of the tampon. Um, Certainly no applicator as we know them today. And none of the early varieties of of, uh, tampons had applicators until Tampax, and they started with a paper tube applicator. So talking about the 1920s, there was this myth (laughs) that arose, and and unfortunately, I think it still lingers today, so we have to talk about it. This concern that hygiene products can damage the hymen, and that using a tampon in particular will take your virginity. Um, So much so that early ads actually noted specifically that they were safe for young and unmarried girls. So let's talk a little bit about the hymen, shall we, Andrea? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't actually break, right? It actually stretches. So it's possible that inserting a tampon will stretch your hymen, but we can stretch our hymen in other ways. And it's possible that it won't actually stretch when we have sex. Um, tampons are small. They can be inserted through the existing opening of our hymen, um, hence where we get blood and blood clots. That's where right. they come I was gonna out. Say, <laughs> If it if it was completely sealed, you wouldn't be able to have a period. So it's a very thin membrane, but it does indeed have an opening. So I think that that's really shocking for people that even like the, the first time that you have penetrative sex, it's possible that, you know, the hymen doesn't stretch all the way or as much as some folks think that it would. So no, using tampons does not take your virginity. A virgin is someone who has not had sex before. So if you haven't had sex before, if you're using a tampon, you're still a virgin. Remember that tampons are medical devices. They're regulated by the FDA. So if you need or choose to use tampons, that's a legit medical choice that you're making for your body. And don't let anyone judge you or tell you otherwise. So enter the 1970s, brands began to release adhesive disposable pads, similar to what we see today. Um, And at first, um, you know, the the first generation ones were pretty bulky and uncomfortable to wear, much like diapers, as you said, Andrea, but definitely a step up from having to wear a full-on belt to hold up your menstrual pad. And then, you know, now, modern day, there are so many options with regard to, um, you know, uh, what are the different type of applications? whether there is an applicator, um, absorbency. absorbency level. Right. And, you know, I always think of in the movie Mean Girls. Did you ever see Mean Girls, Andrea? I reference this all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. Did you see it? When, oh, yeah. I, I forget the character's name, but she talks about her heavy flow and wide set vagina. That's not a thing. Yeah. Tampon no. size has nothing to do with the size of your vagina. It's all about absorbency, right? So larger tampons are for heavy, heavier period flow. I am... Um, always using super, super plus in the first day or (laughs) second day of my period. Um, And then smaller tampons are for lighter flow days. And they're perfectly safe when used properly. Of course, we're going to talk about this. Um, But it is always best to use the lowest absorbency tampon uh, that is going to manage your flow. So um, people change period products for different reasons, not just because they're full, um, but 
Typically, because people always want to know, you know, how many tampons or how many pads should I be using a day? Typically, people use about three to six products per day, and that goes for tampons or pads. That's perfectly normal. Um, if you're using fewer than that, you may not be changing them enough to maintain, um, you know, health and, and good hygiene. You want to, you know, keep things um, hygienic down there. Um, and if you're using more than that because they're filling up fast or leaking, it's possible that maybe you're not using the right absorbency and you might want to try a bigger size or you should talk to your doctor um, if you're concerned about excess heavy bleeding. So should we talk briefly about maybe modern day tampons and safety and regulation? So now obviously you're there are a whole lot of different products. There's pads, there's tampons, there's menstrual cups, there's uh, period underwear. They all have pros and cons. They can all be safely used. Um, Tampons, disposable pads, panty liners, menstrual cups, these are all regulated in some capacity. Um, Tampons are considered class two medical devices and require pre-market notification through the FDA and safety monitoring. Um, And it's great that Tampax and always specifically implement a four-step science-based safety process. And that's a global thing that they implement for all of their tampons and pads. Um, They conduct additional assessments to evaluate performance, safety of components in their products, Um, That includes clinical and in-use assessments, and they actually also involve third-party experts um, to evaluate and vet and validate their products. Um, And so, you know, when you're looking for period products, something that's always important, even if it's not a Tampax or always product, um, best practice is to look for something that has third-party certification, because that means an external source has actually reviewed data um, and also concluded that these products are safe um, as intended. Um, Tambax and Always also use this thing called Smart Label, which is a cool tool that can give you easy and instantaneous access to ingredients and detailed information about why those ingredients are in the products and what role that they're serving. Um, And we actually um, will have a companion post that's going to go into some of those details too. So yeah, so I mean, the main thing that's the big takeaway from all of this is that tampons and pads are extremely safe to use. Um, They've been on the market for decades. Um, They are a far cry from reusable period belts and use whichever product or whatever product um, makes you most comfortable, um, works the best for your flow, you know, and is safe. So we we can't have an episode on period myths and not talk about TSS. And this is such an important topic. And like I said, I remember being 14 years old and hearing about toxic shock syndrome and being kind of scared to use tampons. And now that I've, (laughs) you know, really done my research on this, I, I think that more people need to hear this and how low the risk is, how treatable it is and and all that good stuff. So let's talk about how this, how this even came to be, this concern came to be. So in July of 1980, um, after an outbreak, investigators at the CDC issued a report that linked high absorbency tampons to TSS, toxic shock syndrome. And by the end of the year, there were a total of 890 cases of TSS. Um, But the number 
number of TSS cases declined by 1989, with only 61 cases reported as manufacturers began to change the way that tampons were made. But this outbreak, compared with concern about ingredients in tampons and chemophobia um, and their possible link to cancer, made a lot of people question the safety of tampons. But let's talk about this because TSS is caused by bacteria, not by tampons. And actually, there's a difference between MTSS, which is menstrual toxic shock syndrome, and TSS. So Andrea, let's talk about it. Teach us. All right. So toxic shock syndrome is the medical condition. So it's an illness. And and I want to underscore that it's very, very rare. It it occurs at about um, 0.8 to 3 cases per 100,000 per year. Um, And that's that's across, you know, all demographics. Um, But it's caused not even really by a bacteria, but by a toxin that a particular bacteria produces. Um, so the the main perpetrator is a species of bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus. And there are about 5 to 25% of isolates of Staphylococcus aureus or Staph aureus. We could consider them strains that actually have the capacity to produce this toxin, which is called toxic shock syndrome toxin. So a toxin is a toxic protein, essentially, truly a toxic protein. Um, it, it elicits a physiological response that causes these symptoms. So Staph aureus is actually a natural natural bacteria, part of our microbiome. It's it's on the skin, in the nose, in the armpits, in the vagina. And, you know, normally we just kind of live with it. It's just part of our microbiome. It's a common skin bacteria. It can cause, you know, little staph infections in your skin. Many people have heard of this. Um, and in, you know, that 5 to 25% of these different strains, they can produce this toxin. So these bacteria have this particular gene that allows them to produce this. Under certain circumstances, those particular strains that, again, are already living on your body, they may grow out of control. There's a variety of reasons why this might occur, Um, you know, being immunocompromised, having a wound, other sorts of things. Um, But then when it grows out of control, it produces large quantities of this toxin, which can lead to um, basically what it does is it causes um, the production of very inflammatory chemicals by our immune system. These are called cytokines. And this leads to the symptoms that we associate with toxic shock syndrome. So these are going to be, um, these toxins enter the bloodstream. It leads to this kind of whole body or systemic response that causes symptoms like fever, body or joint aches, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, low blood pressure, rash, difficulty breathing. Again, it's very, very rare, and fatalities associated with toxic shock syndrome are are even rarer. And as just mentioned, there are two types of it. There are non-menstrual TSS, which would be just TSS, and then there's menstrual TSS. So non-menstrual TSS can be caused by things like surgical wounds that get infected, other skin infections, um, burns, which again are damaging your skin and, and allow the introduction of bacteria or the bacterial toxins. Um, and again, menstrual TSS is not caused by period products, but is associated with the vaginal canal, which is why it's called menstrual TSS, and again is caused by the toxins produced by the staph aureus that live in and around the vagina. Um, About 50% of cases are non-menstrual TSS, and about 50% of cases are menstrual TSS. But again, TSS can happen to anyone. If you want to reduce your risk of menstrual TSS, 
Wear the lowest absorbency tampon you can for your flow. Obviously change it as recommended. If you do experience those symptoms that are flu-like symptoms while you're using a tampon or a menstrual cup or really any menstrual device that's inserted into the vagina, uh, remove it immediately, seek medical attention, and tell the healthcare professional um, that you are concerned you may have TSS because it is very treatable especially the earlier it's treated. Um, and of course, if you really wanted to reduce the, the really low risk to begin with, um, you can also alternate or interrupt tampon use by swapping with pads which aren't physically inserted into the vagina. But I think, Andrea, you really underscored here. So TSS, this is not something that's caused by period products. It could happen to anyone. Um, you know, TSS can be caused by surgical wounds, skin infections, right? This is, it's not like tampons are causing this. And that was such a misconception Correct. for me growing up. And the other thing is that it's so treatable, especially when you, you know, treat it early, the outcomes are are very good. Um, so yeah. I, I, I'm hoping we could move away from this association yeah. you know, in this fear. I think, you know, obviously tampon manufacturers have to put that warning label. And right. I think that's, I think that's important because it brings awareness. But I also think that people need to understand that this risk is super, super, super rare. Right. Um, you know, there are things that we do on a daily basis that are far higher risk than our chances of developing TSS um, associated with our menstrual cycle. So Andrea, I know we have so much more ground to cover. I think we have to save a lot for, for next episode, but can I say I one more thing? And you probably have something else yeah. to say too. Um, so one of the major questions that we got was about organic hygiene products versus conventional. And I think that is such a big topic that we have to save that for next week. But yes. just as it relates to TSS, do organic tampons lower the risk of TSS or MTSS, excuse me? And the answer is no, absolutely. Absolutely not. Um, the risk of getting MTSS is the same for both organic or non-organic tampons. It's also the same for cotton or rayon or a blend of the two. So just wanted to note that in the context of MTSS, but we definitely yes. have a lot more to talk about. Very important. <laughs> um, I have a lot to say about organic period products and organic farming and organic crops in general. You? Um, we did so, obviously wow. weird. <laughs> right? Um, we do have two podcast episodes on just organic in the meantime, but we're going to talk about it specifically with regard to period products um, on the next episode. We have a lot of data to get through. Yes. So I think we covered a lot of ground. More to come next episode. You want to take us home, Andrea? Yeah, we got some good stuff coming up for you guys. So make sure um, to tune in. So Thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And again, we want to express a special thank you to PNG for sponsoring this and allowing us to bring more science to the masses, especially about such a stigmatized topic like menstrual cycles and period products. Um, and if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want even more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. We post extended content there that isn't available on our social media channels on a daily basis, and we regularly respond to questions and comments from subscribers. So you'll have a direct line to me and Jess. Um, subscription also gives you access to our private Facebook group and our monthly live Q&As. And there's also some other fun perks like merch discounts. Yes, we do have a merch shop on our website. So check out our Substack at 
theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Next week, we have so much more ground to cover. We are going to tackle part two of our menstrual hygiene discussion. We're going to talk about organic versus conventional period products. We're going to talk about the hygienic nature of period blood or the unhygienic nature of period blood. We're going to talk maybe about sinking period cycles and lots of other topics. Um, we will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 and a variety of other science topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and and Twitter at UnbiasedSciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta learn.